Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Tonight on the Hinckley Report, Utah's leaders react as President Trump's impeachment moves to the next stage. The governor's race takes shape as important endorsements are announced. And as the start of the session nears, lawmakers reveal their legislative priorities. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Ben Wood, journalist with the Salt Lake Tribune, Emily Clark, anchor with ABC4 News, and Chris Blake, partner with RRJ Consulting. So glad to have the three of you here today. It's hard to even know where to start with all the great stuff happening in politics, but let's, let's start locally, Ben. Uh, everyone is waiting to hear what's gonna happen in our governor's race, primarily with Rob Bishop. Uh, was he going to get in and not? So we had this important announcement, not announcement. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, he did end up getting in in a, in a sort of way. He's going to be the running mate for Thomas Wright. Uh, announcement probably took a few people by surprise. Yeah. Most people would probably think Rob Bishop is the bigger name, but uh, it makes it a big ticket now going into the primary season. Yeah, so, so Emily, I, help us understand the calculation on this because no one else has announced a lieutenant governor yet, and this was pretty quick. Like, 13 Super days into quick. I just thought it was interesting that he said, okay, I'm not running, I'm not running, but Thomas Wright, he's my guy. Yeah. And then it took a couple days and like, yeah, Thomas Wright's my guy because I'm his guy. So that was so interesting. But I just think that this whole field is so curious and they're sharing so, we only have so many votes and they're all gonna have to go splitting between oh, the people. Yeah. And so if Rob Bishop got in as well, that just would have split votes even further. So by teaming up with Thomas Wright, you've got a pretty dynamic yeah. pair there, big name in Rob Bishop. Thomas Wright, maybe not as big of a name, but he's done so much in the state of Utah that together, they're a very interesting pairing. Huh. Uh, Chris, let's, let's uh, kind of address a couple of things she just brought up, because it's true, this split vote thing, this plurality, it's kind of a race to plurality. Yeah. Maybe help us understand, maybe this is just a big math question, right? Well, and it's something we haven't ever dealt with in Utah because we've had the caucus convention process. And so this year really is, we've been talking about that there, there's a potential for this split vote or somebody not getting a plurality. Mm -hmm. And I think this seems to be the year that that's a, a greater possibility. You'll have Greg Hughes going the convention only route. Theoretically, with him being the only one doing that, he gets to the primary ballot as well. So you have five or six names on that primary ballot. It's going to be interesting how they carve that up because there's, there's a lot of crossover in terms of what those you know traditional lanes might look like uh, maybe explain uh, based on your political experience working with some of these candidates uh, what you know people say what, why would Rob Bishop want to do this Ben said maybe he's got a bigger name uh, why would he decide he wants to be lieutenant governor or be willing to do it I have no idea <laughs> I mean <laughs> I just I, I really don't know what the thing is it's great for Tom Wright because it, it lock, helps lock in northern Utah there's nobody from that space uh, but I think Rob probably looks at it as the capstone he's been speaker of the Utah House he's been in Congress, he can bring that wise man perspective to an administration without, you know, having to worry about, oh, am I running? Am I doing this? Uh, but it'll be an interesting challenge because it always is for the lieutenant governor. They're kind of caught in an awkward spot. 
Yeah, so as so often this is true, the Lieutenant Governor sometimes takes up these public lands issues, dealing with rural Utah, that may be. So Rob Bishop is great for that. He's a lot of experience with that on the federal level. He'd be, he'd be a pretty good Lieutenant Governor. And I love how you pointed out that there was no way he was gonna be Governor. There's just too many different people in the field. But by doing this, he might guarantee himself to have a nice little send off of yeah. his political career. Ben, are you hearing anything out there on these other candidates and who they may be considering for their Lieutenant Governors? Nothing concrete. And what comes to mind for me is interesting is that when John Huntsman announced there was a similar round of questioning about you know why would he come back to Utah? Why would he yeah. want to be governor? Now we have Rob Bishop coming back to be lieutenant governor, and it's just turning into kind of as we've all said a very odd dynamic in this governor's race. A lot of big names in positions we didn't necessarily expect them to yeah, run what for. What is Huntsman doing? It still makes no sense to me that he's coming back to do this again. But it raises the stakes. Rob raises the stakes on everyone else's pick. I mean, Rob's a big name, and so the others now are looking at it saying, what what am I going to bring to the table that makes it interesting that yeah. stands out? Well, what are they looking for now? Because you're right. So you have uh, Rob Bishop who really is northern Utah, he, he, except for the, uh, the tough first election he had, he's won by huge margins every time he's run for office since. So w what do these other candidates need to bring? Who do they need to tap that's going to kind of fill out the, the end of the spectrum that they don't really have? Well, someone needs to pick a woman, right? That's going to be an interesting pick right there to see if they can have a female lieutenant governor. Uh -huh. Obviously, Amy Winter Newton is running, which is fantastic. But if someone had a female lieutenant governor, that would be a dynamic part to play as well. Mm -hmm. And there are some names that are out there. Senator Deidre Henderson, uh, mm -hmm. Sophia DeCaro, who used to serve in the state house, worked for GoEd uh, for a time. I mean, those are some names. I think you also have to look, is there somebody out of Washington County or Iron County, somebody from that area that could be a good pick that helps maybe establish a, a foothold for one one of those yeah. candidates down in that area. We well, have to think about that a little bit, like when John Huntsman ran uh, for governor the first time, he picked up Gary Herbert, who helped him with Utah County and some places in rural Utah as well. So I think your insights are really good in that. Are we gonna see anyone else, Ben, jump into this race? Is this our slate of candidates? Well, I think we're certainly gonna see more Democratic candidates, or at least at least a couple more Democratic candidates. It, from what I've heard, the, that side of the field is not quite settled. Okay. But and they've got a little more time. They do. As far as Republicans mm -hmm. go, they kind of yeah. Time is now. Okay. Uh, let's go to a national level for just a moment because lots of people are talking this week about the impeachment proceedings and uh, how the articles have now been given to the Senate. Our own delegation is sort of uh, having some, some differences of opinion about this. Emily, uh, we have two tracks right now. We're talking about the proceeding itself and whether or not we call witnesses. Why is this such an issue even with, within the Republican Party in the Senate? Oh, well, it's a big, it's so interesting because the witnesses can make all the difference, right? You can have the political guy saying this is what's happening, but if a witness gets up there and says something, there's really no questioning that because it's that person's word. So of course you've got Lee and you've got Romney. Romney's saying, yeah, maybe we should do it. And Lee kind of on the different side of that opinion. It's kind yeah. of interesting to see how it will uh, shake out. Okay. So, so Ben, let, let's talk about where Utahns are on this, because I know you're talking with them, somewhat divided on uh, the impeachment, whether or not the president should be, should be impeached. Um, uh, when you're talking to these folks, how are they seeing these proceedings? They feel like they're looking for witnesses. Do they want this to be something like a trial? It's hard to say. I mean, we've talked about it on this program how Donald Trump's favorability in the state is lower than what we would expect for a Republican president. So there are there are some opinions in the state that you might not expect to see otherwise. And so I do think you do have a significant number of Utahns who are curious, concerned, they're questioning. I mean, Mitt Romney is kind of embodying that perspective out there, wanting to know as much as he can know, wanting to be fair about it, but also somewhat skeptical of the claims. Mm -hmm. So so Chris, I'm, I, I'm just curious about this, this kind of approach that people are taking, because uh, we're talking 
talking about was you have witnesses. And some of these uh, people who have been appointed to be the managers or former prosecutors, uh, how much of an impeachment proceeding is about the law? How much of it is really about politics? Uh, it's 100% about politics. And I, I still... Uh, maintain. I, I think it's important the presence that you that you have. You know, they're they're presenting a case, and it's as much a political case as it is it as it is a legal case. But the thing I find interesting, I heard just this morning, President Trump added um, the former for the former uh, Clinton, I, uh, Ken Starr, yeah, to his right. team. So all of a sudden. We have flipped places from the 90s. The Democrats are on the Republican side, the Republicans are on yeah. the Democrat side, and they've just switched their talking points one to another in terms of how this plays out. So I, I don't think the witnesses matter as much because it is a political decision, and I think that's pretty much cast in terms of where they're headed. Uh -huh. uh, so Emily, how do people feel about that then? Well, so this, this I mean, because that's kind of a, it's yeah. interesting, go ahead. It's a very interesting thing, because as far as our station goes, we aired all the proceedings in December, right? Everybody was doing it, we did it as well. We got so many people calling and saying, knock it off. Like, put it online, put it somewhere else if someone wants to watch it, but I would rather watch my daytime TV than these <laughs> proceedings. So I think that while people are interested, it's a huge deal, it's the President of the United States, I think there are some people who are just like, figure it out on your own, yeah. let me know what you decide, because uh -huh. they don't want it to take up their daytime TV. I don't know, it just was an interesting side yeah, of all it, this. It is. And uh, how will it be perceived then, because as you're watching this so closely, Ben, as well, so if you have a, a major proceeding like this, you got witnesses called, it starts feeling like it's a court, you got the Supreme Court uh, justice officiating on this, but it comes down to just a political party vote. How, is, how are people going to perceive that? We'll find out in November. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes it so interesting, is we will have the Senate trial immediately followed by what you might call a public trial or a, a trial by ballot. Yeah. And we really can't answer that question until we see how the American electorate goes. Okay. And you're talking Utahns, too. So let's take, just take that issue forward for just a minute, because many people are saying, why don't you just wait? All right, we do have a vote, and it's coming in November. How are Utahns, when you're interacting with them, do, how many you know, people are saying we should just, maybe what Emily was just talking about, maybe let's let the people decide at the end? Well, it goes back to that political question. For those who are opposed to this impeachment process, they say, let the people vote. For those who are in favor, they say, no, impeach huh. them right now. And so it really just breaks down along those ideological lines like Chris was suggesting. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a political question for both the senators and the American public. But it's such a unique, unique dynamic in that we've never had a president impeached, which has happened now, in their first term running for yeah. reelection election and so that is different from what we've seen in past and it creates a really odd spectacle you know do people just view this as uh, politics as usual in DC yeah. I don't really care get get over the games let's move on with governing or do they see this as um, you know this is something serious and significant and maybe it just clearly is what your partisan label is which I think is unfortunate mm -hmm. uh, but maybe that's just the reality of where we're living today mm -hmm. one of the issues that keeps coming up now is after this after what's happened with Iran uh, is well whether or not uh, the president should be reined in on his abilities when it comes to war. Uh, and I want to show a graphic because this is something that our own officials have been talking about. Mitt Romney in particular has been talking about this. Uh, Mitt Romney said, the balance of powers between the executive and legislative branches related to the use of military force is a long-standing issue of debate, and it is a debate we should have. However, with American troops in harm's way, now is not the proper time, and this resolution is not the right approach. Chris, put it through the, the, the lens that you were just saying with this quote from Mitt Romney. Well, I, I, I'm going to side with Senator Lee, if you will, on this one. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, they're using the use of force from 2001, which was passed. Uh, that did not have a deadline on it, as I understand mm -hmm. it. And, I, and so we're still operating under that.
that use of force. So I guess theoretically the president has that official power to move forward. But I think Congress does have that constitutional power and should be debating what are we doing with that power currently? What, what resources from our country are we willing to put forward, both in terms of money, but also American lives? Mm -hmm. And so I think that it is always a worthwhile discussion to have. Uh, we're in, you know, it's always a tenuous time. The world is a changing place. And so it's an appropriate conversation discussion to have in the Congress. Mm -hmm. What do you make of this difference between Mitt Romney and Mike Lee on this? Because we all saw what Mike Lee thought about the briefing that he Well, that's got. what I wanted to bring up. Yeah. It was so interesting. The briefing happened and Lee, Senator Lee came out, usually so supportive of President Trump, but he was very, very strong with his words about how crazy that meeting was and mm -hmm. how he felt like it was not organized and it was out of control. Then, of course, he backpedaled a little bit later and saying, mm -hmm. well, I still support the president. I still support the president. But I think right there that raises a concern that if your team doesn't have it all together on why you did this, mm -hmm. should you have complete control over making that decision? Mm -hmm. uh, we'll watch this one very, very closely. And I know you're, you're following this one, Ben, as well. Uh, some of this does get into what's going to happen in this next presidential election. Any of this going to impact? You brought this up. This is the first time a first-term president has been impeached. Any of these going to have a significant implication on Donald Trump in his next election? How does he play this? Oh, I don't know how he plays it, but it, I think it absolutely has implications. I mean, within the conservative side of politics, there is that libertarian wing, there is that you know, military skeptical wing, or at least foreign involvement military skeptical wing of the Republican side of politics. So yeah, I, I imagine these conversations will absolutely play into the considerations people have. Okay, well, so how does he make it play in his favor? Well, it's it's a display of strength. If I mean, essentially, that if if he can if he can make the case that this had to be done and it was done for the right reasons and it was necessary to protect America, then it's an issue of American safety. Okay, let's do the other side, Chris. Right, because this is not always a winning proposition. Impeachment hasn't been, at least for the party doing it in the past. How the Democrats capitalize on what's happening? Well, I think you have a similar kind of split in terms of their party. Do do we want more foreign engagement, or uh, and then you have those Democrats that you know at some level they've been attacked, maybe fairly and unfairly at different times on are they strong enough on national defense and so you you definitely have a, a breakdown here I think you know Joe Biden the mm -hmm. presumed front runner right now is certainly going to talk about look their diplomacy is is important but I also can project that strength and I can I understand both sides of this and I can help move America's interests forward protecting America's interests whereas you're gonna have you know the, the Elizabeth Warren's the Bernie Sanders saying no we, we shouldn't be involved in this we shouldn't be we, we shouldn't be putting American lives at risk. Let's focus on the home front and making sure, you know, th those things are important, education, Medicare, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, Emily, one thing I, I find interesting through the last election, and even right now as we get ready to go to this next one, is Utah is a place where people are starting to stop. To kind of talk about what's happening sort of the Utah way on the national level, uh, Jill Biden here last week and Bloomberg even coming to the state tomorrow, this next week. Yeah. Yes, Come, Coming to visit us tomorrow. I think it just shows that our votes matter and people would like to have our votes when they get to the electrical co electric college and I just think it shows that we are a good pulse maybe of the entire country while we might be a little different here in Utah we have our own opinions and I think if you can sway a Utah to vote a Democrat that's pretty impressive and so I think that's why we're a place that people are stopping to see if they can kind of test their message uh -huh. and whether or not it'll apply to more people okay uh, one more thing because uh, I know that we've talked about this even in the past this was an interesting day just the last federal piece right here Martha Hughes Cannon uh, Day officially announced this week that's kind of a significant thing, because Utah, maybe talk about this for a minute, a little bit of a first when it comes to the Martha Hughes Cannon. Yeah, the first when it came to women to vote and having um, women leadership here in the state of Utah. I think it's fantastic. Uh, Representative Curtis kind of leading the way on this, making it happen. Yet again, I just think it shows that as Utah, 
in the big picture, we might be a little different, but we've got our heads screwed on straight, and we're doing great things, and we have been doing great things for a very long time. Yes, we have. It's interesting. We'll also have her uh, her uh, statue uh, in Washington, D.C. in the very near future as well. Just a nice uh, local touch to what's happening in Washington, D.C. as well. Can we get to the legislative session? I know you're waiting for it. All of you are. We're just staying up at night in anticipation. Uh, starts uh, Counting down uh, the minutes. Uh, starts on the 27th. One thing is we start talking about what's coming. I just thought I'd give you the number. As of today, 1,170. 71 bill files open. Mm. That's a lot. One week out, just for your way of reference, last year, uh, 1,338 total the whole time. We're pretty far ahead. So, yeah, and can we just, just say a little prayer for those legislative research staffers, the attorneys <laughs> that are having to draft these bills who are working on it. And one of the interesting challenges is with the tax reform special session finishing in December, a lot of work and effort was put into that. So I think that has two ramifications. One, you have the attorneys that are probably even further back than they'd like to be trying to catch up yeah. and get those bills out. But then two, typically the House and Senate are coming in with kind of a full tank of gas. You know, they're not already mad at each other. And, and so, you know, with the tension and some of the conflict that that has created, yeah. you know, I, I just wonder, are they going to be looking to simmer things down, say, let's just get this session over with, let's do the things that are important, let's get the budget mm -hmm. done and move forward, and, and let's not bring up what often are some controversial topics that come up in an election year. Okay. Well, we're probably going to get some anyway. <laughs> I think <laughs> we will. <laughs> yeah. okay. let's, let's see what you all are watching. Emily, what are you, what's some bills you're already watching or a bill you think is going to have Well, I think Angela Romero's bill about clergy oh, and whether yeah, or not yeah. they can report what has been discussed. Yeah, talk about what that is. And that's so, what's going you know, to if you were to have a conversation with your religious leader and you were to share some information about maybe um, an offense, there right now the religious leader is protected to not necessarily report you. This, this bill from Angela Romero says, no, if you've done something wrong, you tell your religious leader, they should report you. There should be no, no question. But the Catholic Diocese here in Utah, obviously very opposed to it, opposed on a national level, trying yeah. to protect that religious freedom. But then there's the other side saying, if you do something wrong and you've told someone about it, you need to be reported and face the yeah. ramifications for that bad decision. It's interesting because you hear about the Catholic Diocese, of course, with, a, with a several strong letters in a position. Even our own speaker, Brad Wilson, came out because he's the one getting most of those letters, yeah. right? So Ben, talk about that and the implications there. Because Angela Romero is not backing down. She's not, and certainly to have the House Speaker opposed to your bill is not a place you want to be two weeks before the session begins. Um, she's not backing down. She's making her case, and she's gathering her supporters, and so it, uh, that could be a bit of a showdown on the Hill. What do you make of the fact that uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has not weighed in on this bill? You know, they've, they've been weighing in less and less over the last couple of years. It, they, you know, until it until it brings them in, that they seem to want to keep a distance from it. So we'll, well see what happens. And I also think that they've kind of taken care of it on their side of, of things as it is. Over the last six months, they've had six months, they've had leaders who work with youth going through training, saying if something like this happens, of course you're going to report it. They have a hotline set up for church leaders that if something happens, you call them and they take care of it. So I think as far as the church is concerned, yes, they are definitely not playing a part in these things as much, but they've taken care of it on their level. So they don't really care what's going on because they have their rules in place for their leadership. Okay. This one definitely going to get a lot more consideration. Appreciate that. Chris, what are you looking at? Well, I think there's a, a number of interesting issues that, that are going to be that are going to be coming up. I think the most important is how are the how are they how is the governor's proposal around the state board of education yeah. going to be looked at? Uh, I personally have been supportive that the governor should be able to appoint uh, the members of the, the the state board of education, largely because as we're in this governor's race, they're all talking about education. The reality is they don't have a lot of direct levers that they can pull on education on public education, and I believe that they should. We should hold one person accountable. 
Uh, and one of the great ways to do that is have the governor appointing people that are in charge of public education at the state level. Uh, how often, uh, just drawing on your experience when you were chief of staff in the legislature, how often do you get the governor presenting a budget that includes all of these kinds of things, all these additional it's always recommendations? The, well, it, yeah, I think that's a great question. I love when governors decide to stake out important policy positions. And so I would say I don't remember it for a number of years. I might be forgetting something. So I think it's a great step by the governor. I know that he's always felt this way and ha hasn't wanted to step out, largely because it, he felt like it looked as self-serving, right? I should have this power. But now that he's not going to be running for office again, it's easier for him to say, this is a power the governor should have. It's appropriate. And uh, let's look at it now while, while I'm leaving. I really like that point, that it's not self-serving for him because he's not going to be yeah. able to use this. But he knows that in his experience, this might be a better way to do it. And he's setting it up for the, his predecessor, whoever comes next, to be able to have more of a say in public education. Yeah. Because as you said, when it comes down to it, we get mad about public education and we point our finger at the governor, not necessarily at the school board who yeah. could do something about it. Well, how will this change the dynamic, Ben? Because this is so interesting because the state school board is elected currently. And um, I'd probably go out on a limb and say a lot of people don't know who their state school board representative is. Uh, and, and, the, and the governor is saying, hey, uh, I do this already. I appoint trustees for all the universities. I appoint the board of regents for higher ed. I have a say in that. And that's not been overly politicized. Why don't I have the power here? How will it change that dynamic? Oh, it'd be a big change. And, you know, the, the point is raised a lot about people not knowing their school members. I don't disagree. I would point out that my family members don't know who the governor is either. So <laughs> this argument about public awareness, it, it does have some weight, but it's not the end all argument. But right now, I mean, there is a there is a school board that is elected. There is a, a local accountability, a constituency for that to then be consolidated in an appointed board, all going back to the governor. It's harder to swap out a governor yeah. if you don't like a decision made at your local elementary school. So there are there are different battles lines that are drawn. This bill came up last year. It was defeated resoundingly in the House, but it drew some very interesting battle lines, some folks on the right and the left coming together to both support and oppose. Uh -huh. It kind of blasted apart the usual coalition we see. It's true. Well, and one of the big changes that could change the dynamic on how people view this, maybe not this year, but in future years, this is the first year that we'll have partisan school board elections at the state level. Yeah. And so we haven't had that. You'll have, I think, 10 members up because of some uh, people that have resigned early from the state board. And so you're going to have a little bit of a split board, but do people want or like that, that partisan component added to the state board? And so it could change the dynamic in terms of how people even view the state board of education moving yeah. forward. And you still have a voice at the local level with your own elementary school and within your own district. So while, yes, it's great to have a, a voice on, this, on the state level, what's happening in your own school, while there is some control on the state level, a lot of it is what's happening on your yeah. local level. And that voice is not going to be going away. You'll have direct communication with your district you help to choose people on that board. So your voice isn't going away. It just might not be as loud as it has been. Mm -hmm. Very good points. Okay, Ben, what are you watching? I'm watching gerrymandering. I mean, ever gerrymandering. Since, yeah, ever since 2018, we had three successful initiatives. Two were dealt with immediately. The left, the third was kind of left hanging out there. And from the people I've been talking to, there's been this understanding that 2020 is the year to do whatever it is they're going to do to the anti-gerrymandering initi initiative. Okay, so uh, that was an initiative. We have an independent redistricting commission. So what are you hearing? What are they going to do? Well, that's the thing. I haven't heard anything <laughs> about what they will do. I'm only hearing that something will be done. And that could be a bill. That could be uh, court cases. That could be 
any number of things. But uh, we had, like I said, we had three initiatives. There's only one left standing, and this is kind of the year to deal with it. Uh -huh. Are they going to do it, Chris? I know you've been in, this, in these back rooms talking to people about that. <laughs> uh, well, I, I tend to uh, think that they're likely to pursue more of a, the federal court case uh, uh, perspective, maybe sue on the initiative. One of the things that I find interesting is a number of years ago, there was an Arizona case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, it was voted down, or, or the, the Independent Redistricting Commission was supported a 5-4 vote, uh -huh. Justice Kennedy being that swing vote. And so I think that uh, there are going to be a number of conservatives looking to see if the Supreme Court might change the way that they interpret some of the constitutional language uh -huh. around who has the power on redistricting. Okay. So that's your point, Ben, right? Because the courts kind of let our state uh, have the reins, right? They get to decide on these issues. Right. A lot of this will come down to state law, the state constitution. Right. And so some of these legal questions, you know, the Supreme Court certainly has a role in federal laws regarding the redistricting uh -huh. process, but a lot of this comes down to how the state defines it. Uh-huh. Very good. I'll watch that one closer. Can I bring up one? I want to hear what you're talking about. Uh, we're following this referendum really closely. Uh, as, as you know uh, and our viewers know, uh, this tax uh, reform le uh, legislation came through in a special session, and since then, some groups have been trying to block it. Uh, so, Emily, what's happening? Because they have to, about 116,000 signatures. January 21st. January 21st. Big how's, it, how's it going? Well, they're not quite there, but I think it's interesting to watch the support that has come out of the woodwork, one being Harmon's Grocery, right? They have 19 yeah. locations listed state of Utah. This is a Utah family, started small in West Valley. They've grown this big company. And they came right out and said, this is not good. You can get signatures at our location. So I think that even if they don't get the signatures, the fact that people like that have supported this really yeah. shows that there's a lot of people who don't like this. Yeah. And I just think that that was an interesting part to, to try to get support for the referendum. Uh, and Ben is from both sides of the aisle, too. Right? It is. And you know, Chris made the point earlier about we had this special session in December that kind of, you know, emptied the tank a little bit for our lawmakers. And I'm sure they were hoping that this issue would just kind of go away and they could move on to other things. The public is not letting this issue go away. So we're heading into the general session where we're still talking about something that was done a month ago. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be the backdrop of everything going on on the Hill. Yeah, it will be. So, so Chris, talk about what's happening uh, internally now with the legislature. You, once you have, even if there's not enough signatures for this, for this referendum, is it having an impact? How are they looking at that decision, particularly when it comes to that sales tax on food, which is a, one of the key issues? Yeah, and this is one of the challenges of working for the legislature or being a legislator is you don't speak with that unified voice. And so there's not a unified message coming forward. And th that's what they struggle with. They don't feel like the facts are being presented fairly and uh, from all, all comers. And, and that's frustrating to them. And so they're absolutely concerned about it. But I think they believe in their heart of hearts. They have done the right thing. They have done, if you to use your term, the Utah way. They've looked at things. And how can we stabilize our state budget going forward to make sure that we're in a better situation mm -hmm. and they don't feel like that message is resonating and it's not but it's it's that that measure of responsibility that they feel so strongly about so yeah it always concerns them when when these types of things happen because it puts greater political pressure on them and greater focus on upcoming elections which are going to be you know filing really quickly here but they're mm -hmm. looking at the bigger picture and setting up for the future and I think a lot of people have a hard time seeing that as you uh, no question out. No have question. a long, hard time seeing that okay this might be bad now but in the big picture this is setting up a better Utah for our future uh -huh. generations do you, do you think they're going to address the food tax or think they're going to leave it? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. There's a lot of people unhappy, but if you take a look at the people supporting the bill, they're saying it's going to be okay. We're taking care of poverty in a different way. So if this tax is hurting you, you will still be taken care of. Okay. That's going to, have to be the last word. We'll watch these closely. Can't wait for this session to start. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of the Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.